You're listening to Challenger Chats, a brand new podcast featuring the founders and business leaders behind the UK's hottest challenger brands. I'm Adam Spencer, and in this episode, I'm joined by Joan Murphy, the co-founder of Frame and one of the pioneers of the studio-based group exercise market. During our chat, we cover a wide range of topics, including Frame's experience of raising capital from Piper, the perils of social media, the current challenges facing the fitness industry and how Frame is adapting to these, and what growth might look like in a post-pandemic world. So, dial up the volume, kick back, and enjoy. So, I'm delighted and privileged to be joined today by one of my favourite people, Joan Murphy. Joan is the co-founder of Frame, a fitness and lifestyle brand that delivers in-person group exercise classes from its collection of central London studios, as well as a recently launched digital fitness solution streaming, I think over 130 now, live classes a week to its members or its framers. Joan and her team have built a boutique fitness brand that's inclusive, fun, and has remained vibrant and, more importantly, relevant over more than 10 years, which, given the promiscuous nature of today's consumer, is no mean feat. In 2017, they raised capital from Piper, one of the UK's leading brand-led investors, to drive growth and expansion. We'll dig into this fundraising story a bit more later on, but firstly, Joan, welcome to Challenger Chats. Hi, Adam. I like the fact you say that I'm one of your favourite people. I don't think I was in 2017. You grew on me over time, Joan. What can I say? (laughs) So, Joan, I think it's fair to say that Frame, if we look back, was one of the real pioneers of the boutique fitness category and one of the first operators to really nail the pay-as-you-go fitness model. So I want to take you back to those heady days of 2009, simpler times when Brexit wasn't even a word and the only crisis we had to deal with was a small financial one. So it was back then that you and your co-founder, Pip Black, opened your first frame site in Shoreditch. What I want to know from you is what gave you two young, fresh-faced upstarts the right to go after the fitness firsts and the virgin actives of this world who were dominating the gym scene at the time? Well, I guess a few things. Naivety at what it takes to start a business. Um, We were both very young in mid-20s. And um, I think sometimes as an entrepreneur, it's quite good to not know what's ahead So I think for us, we were looking for something for ourselves. So we were looking for something that we would want to go to. I'm from New Zealand and Pip's from England, but had spent a lot of time in Australia. And we were really looking for for something that was going to excite us, something that we weren't committed to, something that we could go and enjoy with friends that wasn't sort of, you know, lifting weights, pounding a treadmill. Um, we thought there was more to it. So I think naivety in, in the, the challenges of running a property or finding a property in central London was probably a blessing. And we were young. We didn't have anything to lose. So we thought, you know, this is something that we would really love to go to and thought, well, we're in London. There must be lots of other people like us. And you found that there were lots of people like you. We did. We very much went after um, the non-gym goers. So we really looked for people who um, probably disliked sport or disliked PE people who um, wanted to find different ways to move. They weren't. Did, they didn't sort of connect potentially with sport or movement um, in their teenage years. So we found Shoreditch was a really great place for that. People who wanted to, you know, try new things, um, early adopters, but very much going after those people who weren't already in that gym market, as you put. And in terms of the first site opening, was it for you guys just a, a- – a bit of fun at the time, just seeing, you know, you mentioned kind of naivety, um, or did you see it as a, um, uh, as something having real legs and something that could grow into, into um, a business that was much larger? 
No, from the outset, Pip and I very much thought that we would open five studios in five years. Again, slightly ambitious, um, but for us, it was very much around getting more people moving more often. That's the vision for the business. And from the start, it was not um, it was not created for a sort of owner operator style place. It was very much for a sort of more accessible way and more user-friendly way of getting more people moving and we plan to do that by opening four five sites in five years and you got to four sites i think in in that five-year period we did so not bad going comparing to your original business plan i've seen a lot worse um (laughs) as you've mentioned and as we can hear and you make no attempt to hide it you're not from these shores you're a proud new zealander Uh, so when did you make your way over to blighty Ah, so I came in 2003, very typical uh, Kiwi and Australian thing of called an OE, overseas experience, um, more like your gap year. After, I did it after uni and a couple of years of work and never left. Still here. <laughs> when did you meet Pip then? So Pip and I met through um, friends. So she was living with a bunch of Kiwis and Aussies in Brixton. Um, I was friends with them and we met through that. So Pip has quite had spent a year in Australia. She's very outdoorsy. We have very similar interests. She was very sporty at school. Um, so when we met, we we just got on really well. And from that point, we kind of we were both working in advertising at the time. We neither of us could fit in like team sports because we were trying to work hard at work and forging careers and when do you fit those things in so we we found we were very much in the same headspace and had had a very similar kind of entry I guess into into the working world um, which didn't didn't allow sort of a lot of that part of our sort of upbringing that we really missed. And you mentioned that you, you, you and Pip shared this similar mindset that you were you were trying to create something that you would want to go to yourselves. And uh, I guess back then you would have defined yourselves as, as framers, which is... Not back then. I still am a framer. Okay. <laughs> you still are. That preempted my next question. So I, I was going to say, would you would you still class yourself as framers now? And what, what does that mean in terms of the way that the, the brand and the business has transitioned? Has, has what you're doing changed at all during that period? Or do you and Pip still find the reasons that you're going to going to frame uh, the same as they were 10 years ago? Yeah, so frame, we say, is just a frame of mind. We say it's kind of a way of being. It's some like an attitude towards life. So we typically don't um, pigeonhole people by age groups, but the locations that we have tend to mean that we sort of sit more between the 25 and 50 kind of market. But really, it's a frame of mind. So it's people who want to make the most out of life. They like to go and try new things. They you sort of, you're upwardly mobile people who want to make the most and do a lot of things and fit a lot of things. So for us, it's really about a mindset as opposed to a stage in life. We have, you know, people who use us once or twice a month as a, as a special treat through to people who use us every day as members. So we really want to try and get more people moving uh, and we want to do that through accessibility, which um, I know we're going to speak later about the digital product, which is really giving us a, a real purpose in, in that mission and a way forward. But yeah, I think for us, it's very much a state of mind. And through starting frame in the, my 20s to having two children to sort of COVID world, very much still in that in that mindset. 
and I guess you know, with with Frame being a, a multi-genre operator, you have the ability to curate your offering for people in different stages of their lives, um, but people that share the same outlook in you know their attitude towards their way of being, such. And and I, I want to kind of touch on this kind of multi-genre approach. And I know Frame obviously hosts a, a number of different disciplines uh, across dance, bar, yoga, hit, and there's there's a school of thought that says you pick one genre and you become the best, the go-to brand in that category and you own that category. You've obviously gone down down a different route. So uh, it'll be interesting to, to hear how you go about retaining a, a cutting edge in your product delivery when you have so many products that you're, you're delivering. Well, it's definitely not the easiest model. It comes with its challenges. But I think um, for us, you know, it does boil down to variety um, is really good for your body. Um, we're uh, 80% female and females do like to change what they do. Um, and we're also very flexible. So, you know, again, we touched on like stages of life or what you're going through at that time. You know, you, you can need different things or want different things from your fitness at different times. So we're very much a, a lifestyle brand rather than a performance brand, which is where it's about a state of mind. So we really want people to feel good. And in order to do that, you know, a lot of people at some point might want to be hitting it hard, um, getting super fit. Other times they may be super stressed out in their home life or their work life. And actually they need to take a more low tempo approach. So we really want to cater to anyone's state of mind or how they're feeling or their, their position. It does throw up complications in terms of having to be great at a lot of things um but you know we've been doing this now for 11 years and we've been working on that obviously across the time so we're doing all right excellent well i'd like to move on to um fundraising and the reason that you and i met joan was just back in back in mid uh, 2017 when you had four sites and a whole load of investors knocking on your door uh, and you'd recognized uh, uh, at that time that you wanted to bring on board institutional investment in order to supercharge growth. How did you know that that was the right time in Frames development to explore a transformational deal? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes you go with your gut. I think you, it depends on where you are as a business. So I think from the journey of Frame, Pip and I started with a good old school bank loan. Um, so for anyone listening, that was possible. Um, so yeah, we started with a bank loan for the first two sites. And then at that point, we got um, two angels involved for the next two sites. This kind of allowed us time to develop the business and to get to grips with the operation, know what it is, understand the customer, prove the model. I think um, back in 2009, you know, we thought we'd do one a year. The reality is our market didn't really start to, to fire up when they talk about the boutique market. I, I like to say the group group exercise market didn't really take off until sort of 2013 and 14. So there was a period there where we were learning the ropes and then it felt like the right time from that process of loan through to angels to take that step the institutional investment we also had a really strong pipeline at the time so we had some ready to go and it felt like the right time to sort of take that step and really cement where we wanted to take the business 
And looking back, how did you find the the whole investment process? Uh, what was what was the most stressful part of it? Wow. Um... <laughs> you can be honest with me, Joan. <laughs> No. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it was a whirlwind, wasn't it? It was like a romance. It was. It was like it was. From, a, from a movie, Adam. We kind when of, Adam met Joan. <laughs> <laughs> we basically kind of turned it around super quick from deciding that's what we wanted to, or needed to do. I think one of the hardest was obviously getting an advisor on board. We hadn't had any experience with an investment process. We met with probably six advisors and it didn't seem to gel or work and I think for us you know it was our baby and we didn't really know how to sort of take that step so we obviously got introduced by friends and then from that point it was it was just you know foot to the floor I think it was for about what two or three months we had quite a tight time time frame that we wanted to achieve we knew the business inside out so I wasn't concerned at any point on presenting the information or being able to answer any questions given but I think the hardest thing is it's like anything the first time you do it it's 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 just the unknown not knowing what's going to come up next and that process understanding the documents I mean there are so many documents um so yeah I think it's just more it was more the process itself I think we're very confident and we we're a very data-driven business so I wasn't concerned about that sort of side of the business um and yeah so I think definitely it's, it's just the unknown really and actually this this deal for me that there were a few unknowns and and firsts in in my experience as well and you talked about being a bit of a whirlwind so I think um, as, as we met uh, we, we met one week on a on a Wednesday, and then I think by the following Monday we were sat by your side in in, in investor presentations. So yeah, it was a that was a very steep learning curve for us. Um, but I think that the other thing that kind of yeah really stood out was in my kind of ten or fifteen years of doing deals, it was the first and so far the only client that we've had um, go into labor immediately after an investor investor presentation. I don't want to say which investors it might give them a complex. Uh, And then a few weeks later, the first time we had a baby join us in the board meeting. Uh, Now, this was your co-founder, Pip, but um, uh, you're also a mum yourself. And it goes without saying that family is a huge important part of your life. I've just had my first baby, Sienna, who's just over three weeks old. So I'm experiencing firsthand how much pressure new additions can put on families and on work life uh so uh, i guess as, as an aside be interesting to to get your take on as you know as as the leader of a business and and a team did having a family materially change your approach to your relationship with frame and the people in frame yeah i guess the backstory to this is pip and i very much at the beginning started by doing everything both doing everything the whole time because um, we sort of say it was an on-the-job MBA. It was like a working project um, because we were only in our mid-20s. So we very much did all sides of the business. Now, when people say to me, what would you do differently? You would say, okay, well, if you'd have clearer roles and you'd spend less time, um, you know, crossing over. However, those first few years meant that actually we've managed to have four children between us. Um, across a, a five-year period um, because we could pick up where the other one 
left off, for example. So I think, and especially like with those pitches, I distinctly remember the conversation saying, yeah, we'll only pitch to five or six because that will be enough and we'd already done a short list, et cetera, et cetera. And I distinctly remember after the third pitch being like, so we've got another five that really want to meet you. And I was like, I'm pretty sure we think the pit was having a baby. <laughs> so we got to the, I think it was the fifth of the six. Um, and then she, and then she went off to, to the hospital. So I think, you know, it's been great having a co-founder who's been in the same life stage and understands the environment that the other's going through. Um, in terms of the business, I personally found it easier to switch off. I think uh, starting a business is all consuming, which is not necessarily healthy for a long, prolonged period of time. So I think the I think that uh, preparing to not be there, so I had my son first, meant that we had to bring in better systems it meant we had to hand over responsibilities so for me personally it was around that point of you know I guess taking a little bit less control over things um, and I think that, that period taught us both that you know we have an amazing team and we always have and um, we have a very strong purpose to our business and I think it proves that actually you know if you have the right team and culture then you can trust people. So I think for me, it very much meant that I could switch off sometimes, um, very hard as a founder, and and allowed other people in the business to grow. So more systems, um, more structure. Okay. And, and you mentioned culture and obviously bringing a, a PE investor into the frame, uh, no pun intended, really in some cases does have quite a material impact on culture or, um, or, or certainly has the potential to impact on culture. Did you find that um, post-investment that the culture in the business changed at all, um, either you know, at board level or, or further down um, uh, across, your, across your staff? And has it taken some of the fun out of it for you? <laughs> Well, we always said that if it wasn't fun, then we'd be out. Um, I think, you know, I think what we what we want to create is not a different experience for customers than it is internally. So when we refer to the term of framers, we mean everyone. So whether or not it's the front of house, whether or not it's the teachers, whether or not it's the, the people coming through the door. Um, so I think... Not overly in terms of the studios and the operations and the teams. I think Piper is very good at um, not imposing that. I think in terms of a management team, you know, it was quite a lot more in terms of reporting requirements, which everyone obviously tells you that will be the case. But we are a very small management team, so that definitely definitely digs into the time that sometimes I feel like, oh, my God, but I could be doing so many things. Um, but I think, again, it does make you take that time to sort of take your hands out of the business and think, okay, so what have we done? What are we doing? And I think that that is actually quite a good time for reflection because I think otherwise you wouldn't do it. So I think that's probably quite a good process to go through on a monthly or bi-monthly basis. And I think in terms of like choosing an investor, as you know, we had had a lot of offers. I think for us, it was about a choosing an investor that was not going to um, just look at the bottom line and not 
consider the consumer because the reality is we are big open spaces and we have people are the product, the front of house, the product. We're selling to real people who are walking in the door or online now. And, um, you know, we really needed to find someone that really believed in consumer brands and really understood profiling and people, uh, which I think is was super important for us. Absolutely. And in terms of changes that, that often come with PE, obviously PE investors are very often keen to get a chairperson on board, either as soon as they invest or, or very shortly afterwards. It took Frame a little bit longer to get that person, but you found a chairperson. Can you tell us a bit about um, how you went about finding the right the right person to sit on your board and, and go on this journey with you? Yeah, of course. It was quite a long journey. I think it was maybe 18 months before we had someone. So we had someone from Piper kind of in an acting position. And in some ways you think, should we have done it sooner? What are the benefits? But I think for Pip and I, again, it was very much a first. We'd not been in a boardroom before. We'd not been in that sort of position. And I think what resulted in the in the waiting of time is getting the right person. So we did talk to a lot of people through our contacts, through the investors' contacts, um, but we landed on um, someone called John Trahan, who has like a long history within the leisure market, um, and he also founded the Gym Group, which is IPO'd. So we ended up with the highest caliber we could. And I think, you know, had we rushed it, we wouldn't have made the right decision or got somebody different in. So he very much came in and has got a lot of the elements that we need to be brave and the experience that that none of us on the board had within our sector. So, you know, I think when you said, how did you know it was time to get institutional investment? We just knew we kind of saw the vision of where we wanted to go. And I think exactly the same thing happened with the chairperson. I think with some things like that, it just has to fit and it has to be right. A little unconventional not having one, but it worked out in the long run. <laughs> Excellent. Now, thanks for that, Joan. Um, so now we've reached that time we've all been waiting for. Well, I have anyway. Uh, it's our quick fire round. So we're going to throw a few short, sharp questions at you and you're going to give us some short, sharp answers back. Ready to go? Do I have to answer them all? You have to answer them all, yes. Let's see how these go. So uh, we'll start with an easy one. Uh, UK or New Zealand? New Zealand. Peloton or road bike? Road bike. 1am nightcap or 6am workout? Both. <laughs> Detail or big picture? Big picture. Yoga or Pilates? Oh, that's cruel. Both. <laughs> oh, I'll give you that one. Favourite place to hang out and you can't say in a frame? Mum and Dad's. And what's the most used app on your phone right now? WhatsApp. So boring. <laughs> it probably has been for the last 10 years. Well, yeah, mum and dad's because um, I haven't been there for two years. I was supposed to be there this Christmas. So at the moment, that's the only place I can think about. Done coronavirus. And uh, finally, Darko, well, oh, I mentioned the C word, sorry. And social media, love it or hate it? Hate it. I'm a bit old school. It's turning into a, a real difficult part of the business for, for I think, any consumer-facing brand to manage. And whenever I think about social media and the pitfalls, um, you're certainly in the last few few weeks and months, um, always get my mind always goes back to CrossFit and that controversy a few months back. And uh, 
particularly where, where it's, um, its founder made a couple of, let's say, ill-considered remarks um, publicly and privately on the back of Black Lives Matter. And the, the social media pile-on was, was swift and, and effective. Boycotts, loss of significant corporate sponsors and founder having stepped down. Is that kind of thing something that keeps you and, and Pip and the team awake at night? So I think, like, I obviously had to choose love or hate. I think social media has a really good place for certain things. Um, I think it does mean that brands need to be more authentic. I think, you know, it's really shone the lens on companies um, about culture. I think my challenge with social media is just there is so many platforms. So as a business, you need to prioritise um, and think really where your core market is and how are they using it. And there's an un- there's you know there's an understanding of what people and how people consume on different platforms. So I think for us, we very much go for fun or useful. So for us, um, Instagram is our bigger social media channel. We get a lot of like more customer experience through Twitter. Um, but when you start piling on all the new types of platforms it becomes a minefield so the one that seems to be having the resurgence is Facebook groups so that is something that we started to use in in lockdown to keep the community connected so I do think there's some really good parts to it but I think there is the negative sides is that people only see what they want to see sometimes so you know, the things can spiral out one way or another way quite quickly. But as as a brand, it's very hard to justify or come back to those things in any sort of meaningful way. So I think, you know, in the old, in the old days, you know, a while back when I first started in advertising like 15 years ago, you know, brands pushed a message to consumers and that's the mess, you know, and that's what they thought of the brand and that's the message they got. However, now I feel like it's flipped around and really the consumers are saying, well, actually, you're saying you're this, but you're not actually that. So you need to live and breathe what you're pushing out. So you can't push a message to consumers anymore because they will look in. And then there's no hiding spaces there. Um, you know, you, you'll get found, found out if your messaging isn't consistent with the way that you actually deliver and perform. Which is why it just make, you know, it makes sense. Just don't put on a show. Then it's not, then it's not a problem. Cool. So um, unfortunately, um, we're in this world where we need to mention the C word, coronavirus, um, and we're recording this in early December 2020. It was around nine. So we're now around nine months since the start of the coronavirus crisis here in the UK. And your site sadly had to close in March and then close again in early November. Uh, so so now you've re reopened. Um, I just want to um, get your take on what you make of the new kind of restrictions we find ourselves in under in the UK. Yeah, of course. So it's, it is no denying it's a very difficult operating environment. We've got quite stringent res- restrictions in terms of the number of people we can have within a space, within a building, um, and how they need to operate. So for us... As a company, it's it's tricky because we were set to grow. So we were we were planning to open outside of London. We were sort of on a growth trajectory. So the the sites we have open are very limited in its um, you know opportunity to earn. They capped at fifty percent of 
approximately due to the numbers. So for this industry, it's really hard to sort of make up any deferrals of payments that come in or um, to sort of be able to program enough to keep enough hours for staff. I think there's a real worry within our industry because group exercise is has to close if an area goes into tier three. So gyms can stay open, but group exercise needs to close. So we're sort of on this sort of knife edge of are we open, are we closed? Um, what does that mean to, to our staff? How do we manage memberships? You know, it's it's quite logistically quite intense. I think we are such a clean, sterile environment. <laughs> we don't, you know, uh, you know, you you can't move without sanitizing. You've got masks. You've got, you don't ever share equipment. Um, so there is a huge amount of logic to some of the restrictions, which is obviously frustrating. However, you know, we are we are doing what we can to to keep people moving. Amazing. And and on the on the demand side, are you seeing customers come back? And and if so, what what kind of customers are coming back? Yeah, of course. So we had quite a mixed model. We had quite a high percentage of actually mon- monthly paying members prior to COVID. Uh, so where customers are in the proximity of the studio, they've come back and their frequencies as high, if not higher, than pre-COVID. Um, we have a lot. We have got a large chunk of people still um, on freeze from the November lockdown. Potentially, they're already at home with their families. Potentially, they're not in London. Obviously, the economic situation is some people haven't got work. So, I think it's very situational. Frame as a brand is very flexible. We're very consumer orientated. So, we are trying to accommodate people's changes as much as possible. Um, and we've done that predominantly through um, a new tech infrastructure over lockdown one. We'll touch on the tech in a few minutes, but just wanted to kind of um, uh, touch on first the, uh, the the wider kind of um, group exercise market. And uh, obviously you know, there are a number of pressures piling on that market, not, notwithstanding you've, you've talked about the requirements for social distancing, fewer people in, in, in sight, um, hygiene, uh, but also there's, as you say, people you know, whose lifestyles have changed you know, in the short term, people working from home. Um, and you know, this is putting extreme pressure on, on business models of, uh, of group exercise operators particularly in London where footfall is down massively and arguably many operators were already over-rented with, with big fixed costs and, and, and rent obligations. Um, so many operators are going to be struggling, um, whether they're private equity backed or not. And we often see these um, market dynamics tend to be kind of drivers of M&A activity and consolidation in sectors. So could you see frame buying or merging with another fitness brand, uh, group fitness or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, I think you can never say never and you don't really know what is around the corner, especially at the moment. I think, you know, everyone's businesses are set up so differently. Um, Negotiations with landlords and these things, you know, they just vary wildly. So I think Future Frame, we've obviously, like everyone else, written about 10 business plans over this, (laughs) this period. Um, but we have settled on one, thankfully. And um, I think, yeah, of course, I think um, an acquisition is something that we would we would welcome. Um, 
we have a strong strong plan in terms of of growth over the next three years. So if that includes an acquisition, then great. Um, however, there are a lot of opportunities out there now in terms of the property market. That was something that was very much a hindrance in the past in terms of growth, like you've mentioned, the over rental, over fixed cost um, base models that are around. So I think it really is a situational thing and it comes down to individual landlords, I think, how things pan out sometimes. And how have your landlords been throughout the uh, uh, throughout this period? Uh, so we've got seven, and I think they range from amazing down to not so friendly. <laughs> not so amazing. <laughs> okay, we're probably safest to leave it at that. I imagine <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a good spectrum, and predominantly, predominantly, we're in you know good conversations with everyone. You know, they believe in the brand. Um, you know, we've produced really good footfalls for these for these um, landlords over a period of time because we're predominantly in areas where there's a working population, um, and you know, one of their big drivers is to bring and keep people in an area, spending money and, and amenities to their offices. So, you know, broadly speaking, um, I know all of the landlords myself, so that helps. Absolutely. And touching on something you've already mentioned, which is your, your digital offering and the, the kind of wider digital space. Uh, obviously, we've seen Peloton with their huge UK marketing drive this year and just countless um, uh, fundraisings and uh, and acquisitions going on in, in the connected fitness market. You've got Lululemon acquiring Mirror for half a billion dollars and hundreds of millions of EC dollars being plowed into the likes of Tonal and Swift and others. This is obviously a, a really hot part of the market at the moment, clearly driven by uh, a lot of more people you know, working from home and um, you know, looking for ways to stay fit at home. So how are you kind of adapting to this kind of development in the market? And do you see it as an opportunity or as a, as a, a longer term threat to you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's the thing on everyone's lips within our industry at the moment and how you play it and, and, and what you've done, and what you're planning to do. I think digital is um, no longer a nice to have. It's a, it's a service and an expectation. I think it's very difficult to stay connected with consumers if they, you know, can't have you in their pocket. I think there's a real market for like, omni-channel fitness, meaning I might do something, I might run, I might do some, you know, training classes in a studio, I might have my local yoga teacher that I go to. So I think there is going to be an element of people picking and choosing from different different areas but I think as a brand it's as it's, it's no longer a nice to have I do find it interesting though that people are like oh my goodness all of a sudden people are working out at home I think if you wind back it did there was um Mr Motivator on TV there was Jane Fonda on Jane Fonda so yeah there was CDs you know it's not it's not a new thing it's just um you know, being brought into the modern age, like most things, you know, things that were retro then come back around. So I think people are much, much more aware of their um, general well-being. I won't call it fitness because I think people are really now starting to understand the 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 mental health side. So I think for Frame, we very much, um, you know, we want people to feel good. So we're all about 
you know, how does it make you feel? We think we're thinking about your your physical well-being as well as your mental and your spiritual well-being. So for us, taking it online has been fantastic. We've had a really good response. We went for um, an on-demand product first. So a lot of the industry just kind of jumped onto Instagram. It was the first thing that they could get to to stay connected. Um, we spent in eight days, we had two camera crew for three days and we filmed 80 videos for an on-demand platform. Um, very much in a beta phase and something that we would not normally put out, but the customers were so thankful for being there with them in their living rooms through that first lockdown. Um, it also allowed us to reach out to key workers and give them free access to this platform, which was a really nice feel good for the company and for the team. So we had two and a half thousand heroes on our platform and, you know, we had my favourite was two nurses who sent us doing the 10-minute abs in their scrubs in the lunchroom. Um, once a week, they'd send us a video showing us the like 10 or 15 minutes um, or people from, um, you know, the police sending us things that they were doing in their uniforms. So, you know, I think, you know, staying connected and, and knowing your audience um, and being being relevant with them was really, really important in that time. Um, and it's also now allowed us to have an on-demand product, which we've now created a live stream studio. So if you look on a studio, we have around 130 classes in a regular three studio site a week. So we've now created that live stream. So for those people who were maybe coming to studios who have moved away, maybe they're isolating, they can still get that feel good at home. Excellent. And uh, I know that your sites have always been, they've had a really good kind of community feel about them, um, you know, uh, regular members going in. How do you how do you translate that community feel and the, the, the sense of belonging um, through an online channel and online means? Yeah, I mean, it's that's kind of the million, million pound question at the moment, isn't it? I think, you know, various businesses are doing it in different ways. Um, and it does really come down to your community and what they want. So we're not very, we're not a connected fitness. We don't do leaderboards and we don't do scoring. That doesn't fit in our brand ethos. So for us, we're getting a lot of community via seeing the same teachers on the live stream as people saw in class. So they already had a connection or they know the person. Um, we see regular timetabling to make sure that they can come back to the same place and allow some time to sort of engage and then in terms of the on-demand, we have a closed Facebook group where they can chat. And I think one of my favourite was a couple of weeks into, into the first lockdown, there was two complete strangers on the chat saying, I need an accountability. I need to get up and do something. Would someone join me? And two complete strangers saying, cool, I'll put you on my phone and we'll do the class together. So I think, you know, there's different ways of doing it. So it depends on the type of consumer you've got. But we, you know... It's all the usual things in terms of letting people know how many times they've done something or how many minutes they've moved their body or um, suggesting things that they might like so that making that personalization um, a factor. There are so many factors at play. And in particular, I think you know, customer retention and customer acquisition are um, you know, clearly going to be kind of really important metrics you know, for, for the online 
part of these businesses got businesses like frame going forwards and so how do you how do you go about looking at retention and acquisition of customers is it is it too early to draw kind of trends out from uh, your online offering or you know do you think about these in you know similar ways as you do to your uh, your bricks and mortar customers so to speak yeah so we sort of say that the on the um online is a our eighth studio so we very much treat it like a studio. So looking at the similar metrics, lifetime values, frequencies, um, and where they've come from. Have they been at Frame prior? Are they brand new to Frame? And um, it's really great to see 30% of our online framers have never been to a Frame. So we are managing to, to find a new audience, um, which is super exciting for us because we've been central London-based and we really want to grow um, outside of London. So that's a really promising sign. Um, things like churn rates, how long people watch a video for, you know, how many times do they come back to the same teacher? So it's really exciting. I mean, there's so much you can see. It is obviously in its infancy. Um, but, you know, it did, it revenue wise, it created um, it, it the same in October as, as one of the studios that we had open during October. Um, and it grew 178% in November, maybe slightly helped by another lockdown. But, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but <laughs> impressive after, metrics anyway. Yeah, but also after a week of the studios being open, those, those numbers are still super high. So, you know, it's showing real, real great promise for the future. They're sticking us there. I guess looking at it from a studio perspective, in the longer term, do you see online generating you know, similar profit contribution as your actual bricks and mortar studios, or could it become a, a bigger part of the business than some of your studios? Yeah, I think uh, you know the experience you can't take away from the physical experience. I don't think. Um, you know, I think the buzz that you get, the community you get, the accountability you get, all of the things that kind of come with being in a studio so like I say it's not really about a nice to have it's really a must have however you know we have seven sites at the moment and that one platform or that one studio is supporting those seven sites so I can see that growing as we grow sites add three more sites on that one studio is going to be supporting 10 sites so it's a real asset to the business and in terms of acquisition it's obviously still too early to tell but like promising signs that 30% of those people are brand new to frame. Yeah, that's encouraging. And in terms of opening the brand up to new customers, um, talked about you know looking to um, looking to open up some new bricks and mortar sites. Um, all of your sites in the moment are in London. I know pre-coronavirus you were looking outside of London, and um, I know outside of London has been on on frame's radar for some time now. Um, what what's taking you so long to uh, to make the move um, outside of the M25? Stop it, Adam. Um, <laughs> I think, well, we were all geared up to do it this year. We had two sites in heads of terms. Um, so obviously coronavirus has gotten in the way of that. So I think um, that's delayed it by a year. And previously, property costs have been prohibitive. Uh, I think it was very much a landlord market in those two years leading up to. So I think um far more optimistic and we have some big plans for 21. Watch the space. 
Yeah, and yeah, I think that's one thing that we're seeing uh, across the board. The landlord opportunities in 2021 and and onwards are, are just going to be phenomenal for those businesses that can get through this period, can survive and come out the other side of it. I think the the bricks and mortar offering will be there, um, proposition will be there and be even stronger. And so uh, outside of London, then how, how do you look at a customer outside of London versus a customer in London? Is it all about price and price point or um, will you have to, you know, Justin Taylor, your offering? No, I think, you know, we have had the same vision for 11 years um, and it is very much, you know, our belief that, that Frame will be very similar. I mean, obviously price will come into it, location will come into it, but I think, again, it comes back to, you know, an attitude and a way of living as opposed to a type of person. Um, so, yeah, I think I think from a product point of view, you know, we really want to keep that variety in there. It's very, very key it has meant we've stayed relevant. It means that we can be in the room with the person at the time, you know, through this year, for example, you know, we can timetable things that will, you know, be popular over a Christmas period, but not so popular in a July period. So I think outside of London is very much frame, a three studio frame. And yeah, it, it comes on to the nuances of obviously where that location is and price and, and how we kind of approach that community. So then, in terms of you know, what the next couple of years look like for for Joe Murphy and for and for Frame, uh, where where do you see yourself uh, and the business in in two years' time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for Pip and I, we very much want to grow this company. That that was the the intention of bringing Piper on. So I think now we actually having my positive hat on. We really actually have got that opportunity to open more. Um, and I think now more than ever, people are really aware of their well-being. People will prioritize their well-being. I think the wellness industry and the fitness industry is in a really good place um, once these restrictions can be lifted. So, yeah, lots lots more frames. So the goal is to, to get opening. I think we need a little bit more clarity around, you know, the first quarter, first half of next year, um, you know, take the trainer wheels off and, and uh, front up to outside London. We're very excited. <laughs> so am I. Um, and finally, Joan, can you tell us something that not many people know about you? Sure. Um, I've played most sports under the sun, but um, I was a pole vaulter for three years. I thought you were going to say pole something else then. No, no. <laughs> you know me well enough. No, I was a pole vaulter. <laughs> <laughs> My poor dad's dismay when he had to put a three and a half meter pole on the roof of the car to get to competitions. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> that takes some very precise driving skills. To... <laughs> I mean, I really didn't understand that at the time, obviously, but highly annoying for him. <laughs> and what's your PB? Oh God, I can't remember. No, sorry, I haven't got that for you. You'll have to come back to me on that. Okay, we'll we'll need to set up a, um, a Challenger Chats uh, episode two with uh, with Joan to to address some of these burning issues and burning questions. But but in the meantime, Joan, it's been um, fantastic, really insightful chat. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Awesome, thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to any of our channels, drop us a line, or follow Tamriel Capital on LinkedIn, where you can carry on the conversation and engage on all things leisure, hospitality, wellness, consumer, and challenger. Thanks for listening.